This evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. You'll find this on page 994 in the Pew Edition Bible. Mark 1, beginning at verse 21, and reading through verse 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord, congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May I ask you please to keep your Bibles open to our text for this evening's message. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, when you read a narrative such as this in the Gospel of Mark, I think it's very helpful, it's useful for us to ask ourselves two fundamental questions. How is Jesus being depicted here in this story, in this narrative? And then secondly, what is the significance of his action? Now, that may seem obvious to all of us. You say, well, of course we know that. It's the only way you can make sense of this narrative. But I'm, I'm asking you, I'm challenging you tonight to, to dig deeper into the text and to ask yourself the question, how does Jesus portray himself? Or how does Mark portray Jesus? Is he gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Is he the shepherd of his sheep? Or is there another description of Jesus here? And then secondly, what is the significance? What is the significance of what he does in the synagogue? His teaching, but in particular, the casting out of this demon out of this man, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Now, if you look carefully at our text this evening, There seems to be one word in particular, one word in particular that stands out, that you might say encapsulates the significance of this passage. I'm wondering, I'm going to ask maybe if somebody wants to say out loud what that word is that makes Jesus distinctive here in this narrative. Anyone know what that word might be? 
authority. Absolutely. Authority. He speaks, he teaches with authority. It's not the first time we read about that. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what was the response of the people? How amazing. He speaks, he teaches, and he does so with authority. Unlike our scribes. And when he casts out the demons, say, what authority? So think about that word authority. Authority means what? It means power. It means that there is something about his person, something about the nature of his work that enables him to exercise this authority over others. But there's something else. The authority that Jesus exercises demands a response from those who witness it, from those who hear it, and from us tonight, those who read it. You cannot remain neutral. And that will be the question at the end of the sermon tonight. How do you respond to the authority of Jesus? So with that authority in mind, three things I want to draw your attention to in our text. First of all, that authority which is recognized. Secondly, the authority that is opposed. And thirdly, the authority that is demonstrated. So those three things tonight, if you're taking notes, are just to remind you of how the narrative proceeds. I want to go back in chapter 1 to verse 15, which really is the keynote of Jesus' ministry. Again, if you have your Bibles open, what did Jesus Christ proclaim? Did he simply proclaim a a general love for, for people, a love for your neighbor? Now, he speaks of that, of course, but it's far more comprehensive. It's far more powerful. He says, the time is fulfilled. Jesus sees himself as part of the Father's plan, going back already to the Garden of Eden, where God will deliver his people from the the punishment, the judgment that their sin deserves. He has come along that timeline. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. That will be a recurring theme throughout Jesus' public ministry. The kingdom of God, that rule that has its its authority from heaven itself, it's at hand. It's not just some concept, theoretically. It will be demonstrated. It will be seen. But again, in ways that the people had never anticipated, not even the disciples, The kingdom will come through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how the kingdom comes. Which, of course, is a far cry from how people come to power in politics in that day in the first century, but also today. We don't think of a great leader, a great hero, who surrenders himself this way and whose ministry is seen ultimately by many as being a failure. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the call of the gospel. It's not something simply to be contemplated. It's not something that we simply discuss amongst ourselves. The only appropriate response 
to when Jesus exercises his authority is to repent. Repent in the Bible means what? It means you stop in your tracks, you turn around, and you go the other way. You make a U-turn. Repentance is sorrow for sin, not simply because of the consequences of sin, but sorrow for sin because it is an offense to God. And then believe. Not that we simply affirm certain things about Jesus. Now that's important. We affirmed those things tonight in the creed, didn't we? I believe this about Jesus. I believe this about Jesus. But ultimately, it is about putting your trust in the one whom you affirm. Do I put my trust? Do I believe that my sins are forgiven through this Jesus? Do I believe that this Jesus is now reigning and will continue to reign until every enemy is destroyed? Do I believe him enough to follow him, to put myself last, to die to self, as the Apostle Paul will say. I will die to self in order that I may follow Jesus. Are you prepared for that? Something else I want you to note about this gospel narrative in Mark. The pace of the narrative is remarkably fast. Did you notice how many times Mark uses the word immediately? And immediately he did this. And immediately he did that. (laughs) In fact, one could say, if you read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting, you get the sense that Jesus is running, as it were, to the cross. He can't get there fast enough. And so much of this gospel account, a a significant portion of it, is spent in the last two weeks of Jesus' public ministry leading to the cross, culminating in the cross. The pace is fast. Keep up with it. Follow it. And they went to Capernaum. That's Jesus' headquarters in Galilee, remember? Capernaum often does not like him. They they do not like what he has to say. And he goes into the synagogue, which obviously was his custom growing up and was the custom now in his public ministry. And in those days, if someone wanted, especially a man, if he came to the synagogue, was allowed to, to read the scripture and give a word of exhortation. That in itself was not unusual. But, verse 22 And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, if you were to go to a synagogue today, somewhere here in northwest Indiana, and listen to a rabbi or a leader in the synagogue give a message, you might hear something along the lines of, well, we'll read the scriptures and then we'll hear what Rabbi so-and-so says and Rabbi so-and-so says and Rabbi so-and-so. And you go through this long litany of rabbinical teaching, the whole tradition. This is what has been said in the past. But think of Jesus when he, when he speaks on the word, when he preaches on the word. What does he do? It's not simply the tone of his voice. It's not his charisma when he speaks, it's not like, well, 
He's much more engaging. He's much more dynamic when he speaks. That's the authority we're talking about. No, it's something much different, I think. Jesus, as it were, will point the scripture to himself. We've been waiting for these things to happen. The scriptures have been pointing ahead to a Messiah, to a deliverer, to the servant of the Lord. I am he, says Jesus. In his first sermon in his hometown, he reads from the the prophecy of Isaiah about the year of Jubilee being fulfilled. He says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Do you understand now why some of the people became so angry at him? This was Joseph and Mary's son, wasn't he? The carpenter's son? He was not from some long line of of teachers, of priests. His parents are simple folk. He comes from Galilee. He comes from Nazareth. He's not from Jerusalem. He didn't come as a king. At least we don't think so. We're not impressed. Not only that, we are greatly offended that he would say this, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus spoke of fulfillment time and time again. His disciples even will later on marvel at the temple. And Jesus will say what? Someone greater than the temple is among you. That's the authority he is speaking of here. It's not simply that he didn't appeal to that long tradition, but that the scriptures are meant to point to him. You have heard it said of old, do not do this. But I tell you, I tell you, murder is not just committing homicide. Murder is harboring hatred in your heart towards your brother, towards your sister. That's the authority that was recognized by the people. Their eyes are open. But no sooner does Jesus speak these words, no sooner does he announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there is secondly this opposition. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now when you read that, I'm just curious, I won't press you on this, but when you read that, don't you scratch your head and say, what's what's a demon-possessed man doing in the synagogue? Ask yourself that question. Do you think the people would say, well, you know, that's just crazy Joe. He always sits in the back. You know where all the crazy people sit in the sanctuary. No offense to those sitting in the back of the sanctuary tonight. Read some time, again, in one sitting, the Gospel of Mark, and you see this theme that comes out time and time again. Jesus confronts the demons. Jesus exercises his authority by casting out demons. What is that about? I don't think we want to do what a lot of people do today, 
I remember even having a professor of psychology in college telling me when I asked him, do you think that these people who are described as demon-possessed really were just schizophrenic? They had a mental disorder. And he said, probably so. I don't think the Bible allows us to say that. These were people who were under the dominion of Satan. Someone has suggested that this demon possession perhaps is the most graphic, the most vivid way in which man as an image bearer of God has that image distorted. And I think there is something to that. You think of later on in chapter 5, the demoniac who is at the Sea of Galilee. He can't even be part of society. He has to be chained or he'll hurt himself. He'll hurt others. Boys and girls, I want you to think for a moment of what it must have been like to witness these demon-possessed people. It wasn't just that they were odd or they did strange things. There was something deeply, profoundly disturbing about their demon possession. They would harm themselves. They were a threat to other people. They destroyed lives. Go back to that initial question I asked. How is Jesus here depicted? He is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild here in the synagogue. He is depicted as a warrior. He is depicted as a king. If you want another analogy, some of you are old enough, I'm sure, to remember the days where there were so many television programs dealing with the Wild West, right? And you had cowboys, you had settlers. You may have a town that was deeply troubled because you had some bully, some, some lawless person who was intimidating or bullying everybody in town, and they were living in fear, fear of physical harm, fear, fear of having their possessions taken, until, until a man with a badge on his chest, a star, walks into town and says what? There's a new sheriff in town. And when there's a new sheriff in town, he's going to put things right. That's just a very small glimpse of what you have here with Jesus. Revelation chapter 20 says that when Jesus came and established his kingdom, he bound Satan. Satan was not destroyed. Satan was not eliminated altogether. He was not annihilated, but he was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. Jesus himself would speak of that. Remember the time where he cast out a demon and his critics charged that the reason why he cast out demons was because he was the prince of demons. Bizarre. And Jesus said, remember, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you may know what? 
You may know that the kingdom of God is at hand. You may know there is a new sheriff in town. Elsewhere, he talks about his ministry being like the man who goes into the home of the strong man and binds him up and plunders his house. This is what Jesus is doing as the warrior, as the king, as the defender and protector of his people. It reminds me of that song, the line in the Song of Moses, where the people sing of God as our God is a man of war. All kinds of images that we have in the scriptures describing the work of our Lord. Yes, he is the gentle shepherd. Yes, he is the great physician. Yes, he is the sacrificial lamb. But he is also the king who comes to make things right. Satan will no longer have free reign. And the man cried out, or the demon cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's a great deal of speculation about why the the demon acknowledges who Jesus is, as though being able to identify or name your opponent gives you some sort of superiority over your opponent. But obviously that's not the case. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. That's the third point. Do you have the authority recognized, the authority opposed? And the authority opposed, by the way, is going to continue throughout Jesus' ministry. And then thirdly, authority demonstrated. He speaks. Just like later on in Mark's gospel, when the storm is raging... And the disciples are afraid that they're going to be drowned in the Sea of Galilee. How does Jesus calm the storm? He doesn't help them row to shore or take down their sails or steady the ship. He simply says, peace, be still. It is meant to remind us of the voice of God at creation. And God spoke. And the created order was in submission to his voice. Here, even the demons must obey the word of the great king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And again, boys and girls, I want to draw your attention to verse 26. I want you again to picture in your mind, and I don't do this to scare you, but I want you to see how vivid this is and what it must have been like for the people in the synagogue to witness this event. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. I can imagine there was a scream, this shrill voice. It must have been horrifying. For that audience to see that. 
to see what a demon could do trying to distort man as the image of God. And now he's cast out. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Their scribes didn't act this way. Their scribes didn't perform these sorts of miracles. What is this? Which again reminds us that when Jesus exercises that authority, that power, you cannot simply stand neutral with your arms folded and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It demands a response. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves an obvious question. Why do you think this story is selected and placed in Mark's gospel account? You know, Mark most likely received this information from Peter himself. Most likely he wrote it in Rome. The emphasis was, in this gospel account, the emphasis is upon encouraging those who are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. This gospel seeks to answer the question, what does it mean for a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, to live in light of the cross? What did it mean for Jesus? What does it mean for you and for me? course, it reminds us that we live in a world where there is going to be fierce opposition. And yet the Bible speaks with two different voices in this regard. Peter says what? Be alert, be aware, because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion. You don't treat a roaring lion like you do your pet kitty, do you? And yet, James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But we live and we fight, not simply, says Paul, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dominions. This is the nature of the battle in which all of us as God's people are engaged. Remember that. But by way of encouragement, if Jesus Christ is able to cast out the demon, if he is able to overcome Satan and his dominion, are you encouraged by that? Because not only does he demonstrate that here, he will ultimately demonstrate that in all of its glory at the cross. And even then, says Paul, He must reign until all of his enemies are defeated, are subdued, are put in submission under him. The last enemy being what? Death itself. When I think of this passage, ultimately when I think of its application, I think of what the catechism teaches us. 
towards the very beginning, what kind of mediator must he be? What kind of a mediator do we need, do you need, does the world need? Not simply someone who's going to make you rich and healthy. Not simply someone who's going to offer tidbits of wisdom for you to reflect upon. He must must be both true God and true man. He must be true man because man has committed sin and man must pay for his sin. He must be true God so that by the power of his divinity, he may conquer our enemies. That's why I've entitled this message tonight, the opening salvo. That's a good naval military term. In case you were wondering, boys and girls, what the word salvo means. You say, why is he using a word like that? An opening salvo is when a battleship fires its first shots. There is a declaration, as it were, of war. We're at war. Jesus does that in a synagogue of all places, casting out a demon of all things. He is declaring war against Satan and his whole dominion. And he will not rest till that whole dominion has been utterly defeated. And Jesus Christ is all all. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is at hand. Rejoice. The kingdom of God is engaged in warfare. Be vigilant. Be strong. Be of good courage. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you and I confess we know that ultimately because that new sheriff is in town, our destiny is not defeat, but glory. Let's pray. Our God and Father, how wonderful it is to hear those words of our Savior Jesus Christ. And for us, like the audience in that synagogue, to say, what authority, what power, what dominion he has. It is the source of our hope. It is our confidence moving into the future. It is our assurance that what we do is not in vain. And so, Father, strengthen us and bless us, encourage us to fight the good fight of faith, knowing that our warrior king, Jesus Christ, has gone ahead and is now waiting for the day when he shall be all and all. Hear us then, for Jesus' sake. Amen.